So <laughs> we spent some time in a camper in Alaska. My kids, my wife, I don't know who came up with it. It was quickly called the Cramper. Did we tell you that? The Cramper uh, for, I don't know, we were probably 15 days in the Cramper built for six. Really, it's built for two to retire in, right? They tell you it's built for six. There were seven of us, and we were all over the place. We had to learn a lot of different things. And one of the things we learned was we had to trust each other. And it's kind of a hard thing to learn. Like, what happens when dad comes back and says, uh, we got to go now? What do you think it was like after Mary gave birth? A little tiny baby? Oh, I guess he's two by the time the wise men show up, so it's not quite the story I would make it. But you're pretty settled there in Bethlehem. you got family around. You're starting to walk and talk. Maybe there's another baby on the way even. I don't know. And dad wakes up one morning and says, we're going to Egypt tonight. Pack. Now I know if she's a strong 90s woman, Mary's going to say, what? Just like she probably would have said to the angel who said, uh, little girl, you're going to be pregnant this year. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it's going to happen. And she doesn't quite say, what? To him. She does say, can you tell me how? I'd like to know how. And, he, and she gets an answer quite different from Simeon's answer. In any case, so I want to imagine that uh, Mary and Joseph are just like the rest of us. They have promises, they have faith, they have the Holy Spirit, and they have serious baggage in their relationships. They're not saints in the sense that they never really messed up and every step was perfect and beautiful all the way. They totally understood. Otherwise, they wouldn't have lost Jesus and they wouldn't have been mad at him when they found him. You know? They certainly would have come and tried to take him away, call him crazy, all this kind of stuff. But nonetheless, there's something in their family which is so beautiful because they went to Egypt. Because of a dream the dad had. Now, there's something that maybe made that easier for them. And I'm, I'm bringing this up in this way to try to illustrate it in the Joseph text. And that is that any time before strong 90s women, which really meant any time before the 1960s, right? Um, if dad got up in the morning and said, we're going, most women would be like, all right. They might hold reservations in their head. They might think, how on earth is he going to pull this one off, that guy? They do all sorts of stuff. But what they would not do is talk back as if they were in charge, which is the shift that's happened in modern society, I'll suggest. Over the 20th century, we shifted from a place in which father knows best to father's a dumb idiot. We better make sure he doesn't blow it up. And if that's not the way your marriage operates, God bless you, you got a Christian marriage. But I think most marriages out there are operating that way. It's certainly what they show us on the movies and in the sitcoms. Everything's topsy-turvy. No one knows their place. In fact, to put a woman in her place would be rude, right? But isn't that what we all kind of need from God, is to be put in our place so we can know where to bloom? right? Can't that be a good phrase? Or does it always have to be bad to have a place? I feel like the desire to own land and not have to pay to a debtor's, you know, uh, indentured process, that that's really because as a man, I would like my place. Hey, come to my place. Come on over, right? I found my place. I'm happy, right? So why is the idea that men and women have places and that God did this in marriage on purpose so despicable to our ears? And let me suggest to you, we've been listening to the wrong songs, the wrong preachers, the wrong, well, some call them dreamers. 
And yeah, that, that was a reference. You know which one I'm talking about, right? You who are not young. Joseph's family has the same problem. Because Joseph comes along as this 17-year-old kid. He's not even of age. He certainly isn't as old as his like, workaday blue collar, by the way, sex slave children, older brothers, by blood, but kind of slaves in the house at the same time, something, how you even imagine that? I don't know. But in that whole society, you better believe that dad ain't dad, dad is king. And they don't use the word king because the king is a guy who takes all his tents and he builds a wall around the tents. That makes him a king, mostly. Usually then at that point he says, I'm God too, and he, he has some coins. He starts putting his face on. Things like that start to happen. But they nonetheless saw the father as the patriarch, the ark meaning ruler, the father ruler of the home, in such a way that it's pretty funny when the 17-year-old is like, yeah, dad, you're going to bow down to me. This is like against all order. Like even if the guy is king of the universe, like it's your father. The king takes off his crown and bows at the feet of his father to recognize him as honorable and good. That's the fourth commandment, man. That's actually what the Bible teaches we should believe about our parents. We don't have to act like ancient people and do all the weird stuff with staffs and whatnot. But the idea is still true. And so Jacob's quite profound when at first he says, what? Because he has every right to say what to some kid he raised and just paid for that giant coat he's wearing, like a college education and then some, and the kid tells me he knows what's going on? But see, Jacob's not just any old guy by this time in his life. I mean, early in his life, he's kind of any old guy and the one you don't want to be in a sales deal on the other side of, with. <laughs> uh, but by now, he's learned to trust. And you want that story? Genesis 32, Jacob at the Jabbok, he wrestles God in the night. And God proves to him he has nothing if God does not give it to him. And from that point on in the story, you see a change in how Jacob approaches things. And, and let's, let's cover some of that. What has happened since that night at the story? Jacob has moved from that place he names Penuel um, away from, or, or to, excuse me, a place called Shechem. Shechem is a city in the north, so it's a, it's a town where there's a guy who's built a, a, a wall around it, and so it's called a city now. Nothing like what we think of cities as being, um, more like a town with a wall. Uh, but uh, the king of Shechem, he's either named Shechem or Hamor, or maybe both. Kind of in the Hebrew, it's tough. Is this about the father, the son, both of them? One way or the other, though, uh, Abraham is, excuse me, Jacob is able to make a deal with them, and he buys some land for their sheep. Remember, he's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of sheep. He's coming back. He just met his brother. His brother's going that way. I go this way. There's a city. This is, well, I look like an army and they look like a city. Let's broker a deal so they know I'm not an army. He buys some land for the sheep. And they even make a treaty between them so it'll work out. They can, they can uh, uh, live together in peace and uh, maybe prosper and join in marriage and become one great people. And, and that's the idea. Um, but th before that idea gets on the table, there's this, again, the New King James calls it the Dinah incident. I mean, talk about avoiding the issue. Um, Dinah is raped by the prince king of God king, whatever he is of Shechem, out in the field. Why is she out in the field by herself? That's a fair question. Why did he do it? That's an interesting question. Why does everyone think marrying them is the solution? Well... Got to get old world a little bit. Father's thinking about preserving the integrity of the line. 
And he knows that no other man in his right mind is going to have her now. So that's how he goes at it. But the brothers don't think this is such a good idea, and anybody with a beating heart can understand that. But then what they do isn't such a great idea either. So, so Jacob brokers this peace between everybody. It's going to be fine. Dinah just has to have a life where she's married to that guy. And, well, uh, survival is better than starving. Where's your trust in God? That's an interesting thing. But look what happens. My trust in God is this. I've made all those men in that city get circumcised to join me. They got to join my religion if I give them my daughter. That's how Jacob's thinking. Is it right? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's what happens. And then all the men in the city at what, age 17 to 85, get circumcised? I mean, ladies, have some mercy on us. Can you imagine this? And what happens? Well, they get sick. It happens every time. If you're an adult and you cut enough of your body up, you're going to go into some kind of like immuno response and maybe get an infection. You got to fever it through a little bit. And you, you can see where all this goes. And the, let me just, for the fun of it, remind you what the purifying, purifying agent of the day is. It's salt water. Golly. So these guys are recovering from that experience, lying on their beds, and Simeon and Levi decide it's time to take the vengeance of the Lord into their own hands. And they go into the city and they kill every single one of those. And I can't say the word, but in movies they'd say it a certain way and you heard it, right? And they were justified. Maybe, maybe not. No law in the land, yeah? What do you do when there's no law in the land? Uh, Jacob's response is, what did you do? Everyone else is going to kill us now. We just attack that city. They're going to think we're going to attack all of them. And for this reason, by the way, when Reuben will take this time period right after Rachel's death as an opportunity to sleep with Billa, one of the sex slaves of dad. Uh, well, so Reuben, Simeon, Levi, in this time period, all take themselves out of the covenant promise by these decisions that they make. And all of them are tied to a misunderstanding of what marriage is. Interestingly enough, yeah? And, and that brings us with the exception of, you know, chapter 36, there's a big pause where we get the lineage of Esau, and we're not going to go through that here. Um, uh, I do want to reemphasize uh, Rachel's entry into the story, um, and that's going to be in chapter 35 on page, one, uh, page 29 of your pew Bible. Um, chapter 35, uh, and we're going to start at verse... 16, near the bottom of the page, uh, it says, then, uh, this is, oh, I, I, I skipped over this part. Um, God goes back, to, or not God, Jacob goes back to Bethel after this rape incident, but before Reuben goes into Billah. He goes back to Bethel. And remember, Bethel is where he saw the the ladder, the angels coming and going on behalf of God's plan for the whole world. So you might imagine that this is very intentional. Like I move into the land. I got the promises. My brother's okay. I do what I think is supposed to be right. I bring other people into the covenant. And now my family just killed everybody. I'm going to go back to that place where God talked to me and stay there for a bit. So that's what he does. And, and God talks to him. He gives him a promise. He says, I promised you I'd bring you back to this spot. Here you are, back at this spot. And I'm going to be with those who come after you. Why then he decides to leave Bethel, I don't know, but that's where verse 16 starts, what I started a moment ago. 35, 16, now bottom right of page 29. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were some distance from Ephrath, 
which is what Bethlehem will be. It's the town that will be named Bethlehem later. It's called Ephrath or Ephrathah. When they get to Ephrath, you find out that Rachel's been pregnant during this trip. Uh, and she goes into labor, and her, hard, her labor is hard. And uh, I won't read all the rest of it there, um, but she dies in, in the bearing of the children. Which, you know, if there are things that the modern world has given us that we take for granted, let me suggest to you that the hygiene provided by water is one of the biggest things we take for granted. That we have running water and hygiene as a result of that is why we're healthy a lot of the time. Uh, and, and the other one is that uh, we certainly have gotten better at delivering babies without the woman dying. I think there's a various reasons for that. And I'm not saying all doctors always make the right decision. I've heard some real horror stories from delivery rooms and things that go with you the rest of your life. But, you know, if times change, I don't want them to, but if they change and the medical promises of the last generation don't last, well, the thing we're going to have to be most ready for is to see how valuable a fertile woman is. Because you never know which one is her last, really. And you can imagine then how much this must have just broke Jacob's heart. I mean, he spent 14 years working for the woman so he could have her. And he's bringing her back somewhere, somehow, doesn't know where to go. And she dies and she gives him this son. And she calls him son of my sorrow, right? Son of my woe. But Jacob says, sorry, mom, we live in the ancient world. I'm naming the kid son of my right hand which is an expression of his confidence in God in this matter. Um, although you've got to imagine he's totally just been destabilized. And now here he is with these 12 sons, uh, and one of them is, is an infant. The year is 1901 B.C. And two years later, in 1899 B.C., when Joseph, the older brother of two-year-old Benjamin, is 17, he has a dream, right? And so there... Again, our text, chapter 37, uh, verse 2, uh, it sets up the story. Before he has this dream, he's still considered a boy in the sight of his brothers that are from Billa and Zilpah. These are concubines. ESV calls them wives that couldn't be more wrong. A wife is a, uh, a woman that a man contracts with to take care of her and her sons. Daughters, too. They just count as sons. Um, a concubine is a woman who a man contract, contracts with uh, to feed her and to feed her sons, but they don't really get anything else. Right? They're in the slave tent, and he calls on them when he has need, and he'll give the boys a job, and they'll do well for themselves in this life, but they're not his sons. Not the same way, not normally. Now, what goes on in this family through the descent into Egypt and Joseph's position, I mean, it changes everything for them. But see that in the family at the moment, you've got the, uh, one of the two remaining possible heirs. Judah's the only other one besides Joseph left who can heir. He's going to be given this amazing gift in just a moment. But before he does that, he goes and watches the slave boys and he gives a bad report of dad to them. And even though he may have done this in full integrity of the spirit, he's like, Dad, they're ruining the cows. They're completely ruining the cows. Got to fix it. Like, you can see how this went, you know, at the dinner party. Uh, it didn't really go over so well. Uh, 
And then uh, Israel, Jacob, he nonetheless loves Joseph more than his other sons. Uh, It says because he was the son of his old age. And I can only hear that in this kind of way. There are times now when I come out of some part of my house and I head toward the kitchen and I see my wife and I get closer and it's just not my wife at all. And you would think, oh, it's Chloe. Yeah, well, I mean, I got three that are doing it to me now. Yeah. Um, And so, well, you can imagine if Meredith were to die, how those moments would stick a little more, right? And then that's what Jacob's got going on with Joseph because he sees the face of Rachel in him. And he does see him as a blessing. You know, the, he wanted to marry Rachel, not Leah, who is Judah to him, but someone he had to bring along. Yeah, this is his firstborn chosen. And he marks him with the promise. And this is pretty key. He may have been a fool to put Joseph in such jeopardy with his brothers, right? He hadn't read enough psychology about man and woman and how our inner dynamics work as packs, but he knew the promises. And so he cloaks Joseph with this coat of many colors, it says. It doesn't say rainbow. And so I will give you, I am speculating about 20% here, that it wasn't just three colors, right? But that when Joseph had this done, it's in fact his belief that the rainbow, along with circumcision, is the sign of his covenant. And that all the promise of salvation from fire, which is to come on the penalty of our sin, like Sodom and Gomorrah, did already receive before the eyes of the whole world, that this promise he's putting on this boy and saying, Jesus, take care of this for me. I think all of that's true, right? They don't have to be against each other, these ideas. But when the brothers saw it, they hated him. They couldn't speak to him. And then he he has this dream. Two dreams. The dreams are parables, right? They like they kind of take care of themselves as dreams, um, as visions. But they open up a bucket that we don't want to just open this bucket and put it in the corner of the church and let it sit there and have anything fall in this bucket that that comes by. And this bucket is called "How does prophecy work?" <laughs> yeah. And if anybody who has a dream gets to say, "I have a dream. It's from God," well, then we're, uh, prophecy doesn't work. I'll, I'll just say it that way. Um. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you a little kind of basic dream English talk compared and with the Hebrew word. Um, but then we're going to jump away from the text for a little extra study in this service and look at Jeremiah, uh, where he, he makes sure we understand that just because you had a dream doesn't mean it's a true dream. So far more important than distinguishing between dreams and visions is distinguishing between truth and lies. Because then if you have a dream and all it says is the truth, you can know God gave it to you because all it says is the truth. I mean, Jesus shows up. He says, I'm the Savior of the world and I love you. We're like, well, believe it. <laughs> you know, that's true. You know, was that from God? How could it not be? Does that mean that when he wants to talk to you, he's going to give you dreams? No, no, it never says that promise at all. In fact, he says, look to my word and be saved. And I will suggest to you that if you would like to dream about Jesus, you try this. This is hard. This will be hard. You would have to turn off almost all other inputs for like a month or three. No TV, very little phone, get away from email, no news, no music, nothing else. And then you just read or listen to the Bible the entire time. New Testament, just stick with it. Gospels and Paul over and over and over and over again. I guarantee you, you have a dream of Jesus in it at some point. Because your dreams are made of what's inside of you. Right, kind of like your body is made of the food you eat, right? Your your soul is made of of what you take in. 
And uh, the messages being sent our way these days are evidently demonic. They're often telling you to mutilate your flesh on behalf of righteousness. Well, that's, that's, that's wrong. <laughs> not supposed to do that. Huh? So, so then, uh, again, what do we take a dream to be when you have it? That's the real point. I don't want to go off on a tangent. Um, and it, some of the issue is that like the, the authority in the family thing, the ancient world just saw dreams so differently, and the only way to express that is to tell you the story of how the word came into existence in Hebrew. Uh, I'm going to do that. First, what's a dream in English? One of two things is what happens to you in the night while you're asleep as your mind and heart figure out what happened that you ignored or couldn't remember or forgot about today. And they put some of it in a place where you can still function tomorrow, which may mean hiding it from you. Your body's pretty smart. You know, it knows what you can take at the time you are in your life. So it's one kind of dream, the night visions of your heart, which are led by whatever goes in, right? The other type of dream uh, is what I think a lot of Americans talk about. I mean, I have a dream, right? The speech. Well, it wasn't about how he was sleeping. It was about how he had a vision or a daydream or a hope or a goal, something he had imagined that would possibly come true. And I'll leave it right there with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that whether or not the American country ever lives up to the fulfillment of his promises to its people is and remains a dream. And not a horrible one, although one that I think might be a bit pie in the sky if you understand man's nature and all these kinds of things. Uh, but, but let's refrain from worrying too much about what God's going to do with the Antichrist and the Roman beast and all the other stuff going on in the news. Right. Let's go back and think about this word dream from the ancient perspective. It's not going to mean anything you could have imagined. And it's so delicate an issue, honestly, that I'm, I'm still not sure how to talk about it. But we'll, we'll start at the beginning. First off, if somebody like Joseph got up and he said, hey, everybody, I had a dream. He wouldn't use a different word like dream than the word that it came from. They're the same word. And so he wouldn't say, I got up and had a dream. In English, he'd say, I got up and I was strengthened. Which, well, that's an interesting thing to say about dreams, because I think, I mean, not all dreams strengthen, right? Like you've had dreams that we call nightmares. They don't strengthen you at all, right? Yeah. But that's the word they use. Well, there's a reason, because they weren't talking about all dreams. For them, the dream was a very important moment in a man's life. And they didn't mean all all types of night visions. They meant the ones in which his body showed forth that he was strengthening from boyhood to manhood. You know, the ones that you're supposed to talk with your kids about, but most people don't because it's weird and scary. And honestly, pornography has destroyed our souls. Even if you don't use it, it's just changed our fear. We're ashamed of our sexes. Uh, but this is what happens to every boy, right? Around the same time, a girl's going to have her own thing start to happen. And this is all about procreation. It's all about how we are going to be more than just us in the future. Because God gave that to us. And so when a boy is strengthened, when a boy dreams, he's ready to, to be a man. Uh, and that's the root of the word. Now, I don't think that that means that, uh, you know, you have to have that root mean everything dream means. But notice how it is tied. Dreams are tied to the belief that man and woman are meant to be man and woman, strengthened 
through each other into their children. Uh, and then Joseph has that, kind of, and it's, oh, by the way, dad, mom, brothers, um, you're going to bow down to me. Right? And they respond to this in different ways. Uh, let's look down at verse 9 and following, where it says, uh, excuse me, verse 10 and following. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, I, I've always wondered why he mentions Rachel here since she's dead, right? And I guess that's part of his question. He's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> your mother's dead. I'm your father. Your brothers hate you. What are you talking about, this dream you have? And he says that in front of everybody because I think he's trying to keep the peace. He's like, you got to stop talking, Joseph, <laughs> about this. Joseph, you got to know your place. Notice how that's still part of the story. But then his brothers are, are rightly, it says, jealous of him. I want to talk about that word jealous. And then notice, though, how, how Jacob, while he rebukes him openly, he, he goes away and those words, they haunt him. They stick with him. It says that he kept the saying in mind. It's pretty limp-wristed there. He guarded the word. Jacob guarded the word. He didn't let it go away from his mind. He, he ruminated on it. He pondered it. And you can see why, maybe, because indeed, he's had one vision. No, but two. First one, I'm with you. Second one, I'm with your sons. Here's a rainbow coat to put on this son. Boom, he's got a vision too. So he ponders the word. Right. Jacob's not faithless. He's just a man. His brothers also, I don't think, are faithless. They're just men, and they're sick of it. Because this pretentious, better than them, because they're from the wrong mom, so dad never gives them the attention, guy is going to rub it in their faces and be a turncoat and turn them in and always complain about their this and that. And they just want to have fun and hang loose, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, they are jealous of him. The word there is, uh, the thing that I want you to take away today about jealousy is, is this simple thing. Uh, jealousy does not have to be bad any more than anger has to be bad because jealousy and anger are both attributes of God, the father. So they can't be bad. Now, when I get jealous as a man, since I am bad by nature, I tend to get jealous for bad reasons, <laughs> right? Um, but it's possible to be jealous for good reasons. I'll tell you, if you've ever seen somebody stand up in a pulpit and lie about Jesus, and you get angry, it's because you're jealous for God. That's good. You want that. It's what you do with that that we poor, miserable sinners want to be a bit careful about, right? When the fire gets going in your bones because God put it there, right? It doesn't just mean breathe it, <laughs> right? Uh, you, want to, you want to be gentle in your approach. Uh, uh, the zeal of God is the best way to think of the word jealousy, zealousness, ardor, being for and after a thing. 
And I've even tried in my own head just to kind of get it off my back. I know we Lutherans like to beat the thou shall not covet thing until you feel so bad you can't lift your eyes and look at anything anymore. And so I've started recognizing when I'm coveting something like somebody else's pretty cool vehicle, which is normal for guys and girls to covet pretty cool vehicles. I've started just saying, you know, I'm zealous for that truck. I, I understand that getting it, I don't need it that to pursue that for my life would not be helpful to anyone. So I don't plan to do that, but I'm not going to feel guilty that I like it a lot. I kind of wish I had a million of them because Jesus has given me grace enough to walk away from that daydream. It's just what it was, a daydream. And I might even tell the guy, man, sweet truck. Because it is, right? So, so zealousness can be turned into positive talk. Right? When, you, when you catch yourself coveting, it's a moment of opportunity in many, many ways. Well, these guys are, though, however, zealous in the wrong way. They're zealous in their hatred for Joseph. And that's going to come up in the story, uh, as they do not keep the word that Jacob keeps. I want to try to come back to that if we can today, but I mentioned uh, Jeremiah and the dreaming distinction between true and false dreams. So I definitely want to give us at least some um, exposure to these verses from Jeremiah 23 and 29. Uh, Jeremiah 23 starts on page 651 it is 23 verse 21 starts on page 651 in your pew Bible. And I'm going to read verses 21 through 32. And what you're going to get here is how it's it, a false prophet, a, a liar, a zombie, somebody who's just doing what humans do. They can come into a church and they can learn all the words, and they can start using those words to teach lies. And that's what had happened by this point in Israel, that the prophets had figured out that if they could say they had a dream and convince everyone that they did, or even convince themselves that they did, then therefore they were worth listening to. And they were doing all sorts of this on the road to the exile in Babylon. And Jeremiah um, it sends uh, uh, some warnings about this kind of thing. 23, 21 to 32. Here we go. He says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a guard far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams, that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like a fire? declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another, 
Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tells them, who, who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness, when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Uh, it goes on, but we're going to jump to 29, 8 and 9, and then 10 through 14. The same idea continuing forward, right? The, the important thing is not, did the guy have a dream or is the guy a prophet? The important thing is, did what he say, is it true or is it false? And we certainly have enough prophecy in the Bible to test almost everything now. We don't need any more prophecy. That's kind of a New Testament statement. Doesn't mean you can't have a good dream that tells you the truth, though, right? Uh, 29, 8 and 9 says this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners, that means fortune teller, who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. We're going to look at verses 10 to 14, so stay there. But I want to apply this in, in two ways here, right? The dreamers, their dreams, and the lies they teach. Clearly in the text, it's applying to Jewish prophets dealing with the exiles after the first taking away of Jerusalem. Um, that's clearly who it's talking about. So it's very easy to apply this to the Christian church. And basically, uh, any... <laughs> Any pastor you'd have to say, don't come back to, right? It applies to that guy effectively, right? Um, uh, pastors who do not believe what they preach, teach, or confess, that does exist. There are men whose consciences are seared. Who, I mean, this is one of the worst pieces of maybe slander for some guys, but it's the truth for others. That I learned about the Missouri Synod is that a lot of the pastors in the 1970s were just avoiding the war. It was really easy to avoid the war, just become a Missouri Senate pastor, and those guys retired like 10 years ago. And they did a lot of damage to our church body just by being lazy or focused on the wrong things. So it's, it's easy to get into that idea and say, well, why are we all saying we should do this? And it's not in the Bible, right, as Christians. But I think the most powerful illustration of false prophecy today is the weather. And by that, I mean the environmental movement or the ESG ratings or whatever other story is coming down the pike right now that tells you not only we know the future, but we're the God who can fix it. Just pay us more of our idolatrous, filthy lucre mammon, you know, the little Benjamins and Washingtons we put so much trust in. In God we trust, we swear, right? <laughs> we don't, though, do we now? So to see that false prophecy is most of what's on TV, almost all the time, but just effectively, right? Um, the important thing then is if you're going to dream somebody else's dream, that's what TV and movies are, is it false or is it true? And are you ready to defend yourself? And the most important thing there is not, well, I learned it long ago. It's what did you eat today? Did you eat today? Did you, did you read today? Because otherwise you're like a soldier on a battlefield with no food in your stomach and you're going to lose by virtue of weariness eventually. And the way that I used to say that myself to myself was, all I want to do tonight is turn my brain off. 
So when I realized that I must be living a life I hated, if I would say that to myself, that I started changing a little bit. And, and, and it changed just with this. Jesus, let me be more wise. I've asked you to pray this often, right? James, ask Jesus for wisdom. You'll have it. Let's do it again, right? This time I'm going to change it. I've said, Jesus, make me wise before you say it with me. Let's say, I'm going to say it twice, once to you and then once to God. I'm going to say, dear Jesus, make St. Paul Lutheran Church a place where wisdom abounds. Okay, let's, I'm going to say it and then you're going to say it. Dear Jesus, make St. Paul Lutheran Church a place where wisdom abounds. Dear Jesus, make St. Paul Lutheran Church a place where wisdom abounds. Then you won't need to have a dream. Then you won't need to be a prophet. Because you'll know that when a prophet gets a vision like Ezekiel does, and he sees the sky open and the rainbow fire and it's all that, it's only a closer view of what Isaiah already saw. It's not a new throne room. It's the same thing exposed more. And then he goes and he talks, and what's he do? He quotes Amos. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Jeremiah. He's reading the Bible. And then saying what the Bible says, and the people who were there in those days said, wow, it's the same thing. Keep it. Now, we don't have that anymore because the New Testament changed this. But it is how it happened. And Luther even says this, if you care, in our confessions in the small card article, where he says, no prophecy of Scripture comes about but from the Word of God that was already implanted in the people. So that, for example, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's stories are being told in the ear to everybody long before Moses writes it down. He writes it down because it's what is true and has remained true and continues to be true. And it gets written down from different directions over time as this truth stays stable throughout history. And that's why when someone comes along and says, I have a dream and it's completely different than what God always says. Well, you're supposed to not listen to that guy anymore. In fact, Old Testament style, you're supposed to kill him as a people. And we don't have the sword for that these days. So you got to turn a thing off once in a while, unsubscribe from that stuff. Get it away from you. With our last seven minutes here, uh, let's go back to Genesis uh, 37 or so, if you want to turn there. I don't know how much I'm going to look at the text as I take us through the rest of the story to bring us to the the, the low point, really, in Joseph's life. Because, again, like, I don't know what your prayers are. I don't know what your dreams are. If you're later in life, they're probably not as aspiring as they are when you're younger. But But I know that if I had a dream when I was 17 that said I was going to be king, and within like two years, three years, I was in a prison cell in a foreign Middle Eastern country, I'm not sure I'd still believe it. I'd certainly be being like, what's going on, God? And that is the path that Joseph takes. And what's beautiful about Joseph is that every step of the way, whatever inner turmoil he had, and I think he probably did, what gets ridden is the conclusion that he comes to, which every time is that this this dream's true somehow. He doesn't know how at all. But he never once ceases to be a man of integrity. And especially when he ends up in the house of Potiphar, now, do you remember when his loose wife comes to him and, and tries to, you know, play during the day while the big guy's away? What does Joseph say? He doesn't say, how can I betray my master, you know, Potiphar? He says, how can I betray God like that? Because his view of authority is so rooted in his father, who is God, that he believes even if he's thrown in jail again, it's because God did it. 
that, that's the hard lesson. Joseph to Job is that God did it. Fireball comes down from heaven, destroys my beautiful Jeep. I love my Jeep. Destroys my Jeep. God did it. I wasn't in it. Thanks be to God. Huh? What would you like me to do now, God? Do I need to walk to church or should I call the insurance company? Right? Like, he's on your side is the point. Yeah? And that's a marvelously powerful thing in the futility of this age where everything you try to do falls apart, he gives to you while you're asleep. That's his promise. But there'll be enough. You just keep walking forward. It's a valley of shadow, but there is light even in the wilderness. And like, I mean, I've shared this in a lot of different ways, but the same idea applies. You're not going to get what you want out of life while you're looking for it in the wrong places. Not going to happen, right? Young woman dreaming about getting married, but she's not yet ready to submit to her husband. Wow. And you don't want the husband you're going to end up with then right there. You want someone who you're going to be able to submit to, that you want to, that you actually want to, right? And the guy's got the same reality, right? Now, he must submit to his Lord in heaven knowing that he is solely responsible for the faith of his children and that if they should fall away, it's because he missed a boat somewhere, somehow. And it doesn't mean you can force them into the faith. It means that we all must understand who's actually in charge. Who do we owe the payment to? Who demands it at the end of the day? And that this is the merciful Lord Jesus Christ who's given it to us as a good thing, both head and body, to be united in one. And this isn't just about man and woman. This is about the church, right? It's about our, our life as neighbors in a kingdom that is not of this world. Joseph is a forerunner of that kingdom as he sees himself betrayed by those who ought to love him, sold to effectively his second cousins, these Ishmaelites. So this is like extended family buys him <laughs> uh, and taken down and sold to the auction block. Okay, so I got to work at McDonald's now to pay off my student loan debt, right? It's, it's indentured servitude. He didn't choose it though. Dad doesn't know he got taken. So it's somewhere between, you know, I got stuck far away in a foreign city with some debt I got to work off and I'm never getting out probably. Or, and, right, uh, some kind of, uh, I've been taken off the streets of Rockford in a, an international slave trade racketeering thing, right? Both of which are quite possibly true for some people in this world today, by the way, those lives, yeah. Um, so, uh, thanks be to God here on this corner. We don't worry about that, but it's out there. Uh, be aware. Um, so he ends up with that actually happening. I already mentioned, he's in Potiphar's house. It's a military a compound. This guy's an officer, right? This is a place that runs with order, and Joseph follows orders. He does his job. Have you heard it said that there's a shortage of competent workers right now? I think Rockford, that's everywhere, right? And what, what's beautiful about a shortage of competent workers is that if you're a competent worker, you can like ask for more. <laughs> you, know, uh, you have chips at the table to say, yeah, I'll be there tomorrow, um, but I'm going to need this now. I need Sunday nights off. Or whatever it is, right? You earn that trust and you rise in elevation. That's what Joseph does. He calls to the task. He's in charge of everything. And that's, of course, when the loose woman sets her eyes on him and, and that whole story. I'm not going to dig into it in the three minutes we have left. Just the result of it, right? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And if you think that's rude, it's Shakespeare. 
Uh, and she was scorned and she brought it out on him. She didn't want him anywhere around. Didn't want to see him ever again. She screams bloody murder, tells the lie. Who's he? He's a slave after all. And he finds himself down in that prison um, at the bottom of, of Pharaoh's what? I don't know. But I can tell you that he is, uh, he's sold into slavery again two years after Benjamin's born. Benjamin's 1901 BC. He's sold in 1899. And the baker will have his dream in 1888. So he's not in jail for 11 years. He's in jail for like seven years. And during those seven years, he holds to his integrity. I'm sure he's saying praises to God in some way. I don't know what. We don't have those written down. Um, but you see this thing that just happens everywhere Joseph goes. No matter how bad it gets, he's got a bubble around him. He's got a bubble. And the demons getting close and they scream and they shout. And then the, the morning comes and God provides enough for today and enough for tomorrow and enough for the next day. And then again, you know this story a little bit, right? What happens next is long, long down the road. He's just living the life. I got a job. I run a jail for the guy who runs the jail. He likes to stay home and watch TV. I run the jail for him. You know, I'm pretty good at it. And then there's these dreams that show up. Dreams, dreams. Why? We'll have to come back and ponder this more. So let me send you on your way with, with a plea, though. Consider your dreams. Consider them according to what the Scripture says. Consider whether they are biblically hopeful dreams or whether they're built on the sand of this age's false promises. And then again, you know, follow Joseph into the pit and dream with him. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise for prayer.